One of the advantages of reading through the New Testament like we're doing is that we get a better view of certain characters, both over time and through the eyes of the different gospel writers. In this morning's scripture, two such characters are prominent. One is, in this account, unidentified. Though John's gospel tells us it's Mary, the young woman who liked to sit at Jesus' feet to listen to him, and the other is Judas, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, the one who would betray him. In Mary and Judas, we find two people who had both spent significant time in the company of Jesus. And in them, we find two very different, they are opposite, really, responses to Christ, responses which eventually cement their legacies that determine how each would be remembered and spoken of long after they were gone. The story in Mark 14 begins prior to the celebration of the Passover, and Jesus and the disciples are gathered just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. This is the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's held at the home of a man we know as Simon the leper. Now that seems to me to be an unfortunate appellation of all that one could be known for or as, a leper ranks very near the bottom of the list. But then we have to think this through. If he were, at the time of the dinner, still a leper, then I doubt very much that anybody would be coming to his house. Certainly no one would be sharing a meal with someone who had this contagious, horrific condition. And the Jewish laws made it so that it couldn't happen anyway. We might conclude then that Simon was once a leper, and that very likely Jesus had healed him and made him whole. So this gathering at his house likely included many whom Jesus had delivered from their various afflictions. And while Jesus is reclining at the table, his friend Mary came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now probably not much of that means anything to us. We aren't accustomed to alabaster jars or familiar with pricey perfumes. What on earth is nard, anyway? So rather than trying to explain the luxuriousness of this substance, let me just speak to its value. Mark calls it very costly. The NIV, I think, says very expensive. The King James Version, very precious. All of those are relative terms, aren't they? Depending on your standard of living, what you uh, appraise the worth of certain things to be and what you value, these are all relative terms. So to make this a little less subjective, this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii, which means it was worth nearly a year's wages. That would be a person's annual income. So if you want a sense of what Mary is offering here, calculate what you make in a year and think what it would be like for you to simply give that in one lump sum to Jesus. It's no wonder that there were some people at the dinner that night who thought Mary's act of devotion was excessive. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted? like that. The lead critic in this charge was Judas. We learn that from John's gospel in chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, John puts that detail in there, 
said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas fueled this disapproval, but the other disciples agreed, and they piled on, and they scolded Mary soundly, on the one hand for what she had done, and on the other for what she had not. Their assessment was that her most extravagant possession had been wasted. Why was the ointment wasted like that? The significance of Mary's actions were lost on them. I'm convinced that Mary was a much better listener than the disciples. She did, after all, prefer sitting and listening to Jesus than making him dinner. And Jesus commended her for that. As Spurgeon would say to any disciple who wants to do right by Jesus, you must sit at his feet or you'll never anoint them. He must pour out his divine teaching into you or you'll never pour out a precious ointment upon him. Mary had a sense, if not an outright knowledge, of what faced Jesus in the coming days. And yet the disciples did not understand what she was doing. And they were critical of her. Have you noticed where criticism abounds very frequently, so does ignorance? We think we know, but we don't know. This is why Jesus warns us about complaining about the speck in your brother's eye while remaining ignorant of the log that's in your own. This is why James tells us that everyone should be quick to hear and slow to speak. The disciples are wrong to call this loving act of anointing a waste. Nothing that is ever genuinely or generously offered in service and honor to God could be a waste. Anyone who gives even a cup of cold water in Christ's name will have her reward. And Jesus has an altogether different take on Mary's offering to his grumbling disciples. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing, literally and morally good, well adapted to its ends, appropriately useful, the right move. Once again, Mary has chosen the better thing. And as a result of her selfless worship, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Like the poor widow who put two copper coins into the temple treasury, all that she had to live on. We're still talking about these generous acts today. Because God delights in and God rewards those who prove their faith in him through personal sacrifice. I don't know what you're living your life for or what you might be building your kingdom on. But I can assure you, heaven and earth will pass away. Moth and rust will take their toll on everything you think you own. Every day you live, you are getting literally closer to the dust and only what's done for Christ will last. So be wise, my friend, in how you spend your days and what has been entrusted to you. English missionary Charles Thomas C.T. Studd wrote a poem concerning this very thing. It's called Only One Life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing convictions to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. The still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Nothing that is generously and genuinely done in honor and service to God will ever be a waste. And yet the disciples wrongly rebuke Mary for what she had done with her precious perfume. And they scolded her for what she hadn't done. They had in their minds a better way that she could use or spend her wealth. It's easy, isn't it, don't you think, to look on the acts and choices of another and say, I would not have done it that way. Or, well, she or he should have done thus and so. And on its surface, the disciples seem to have a point here. Who could argue that the spreading out of a year's wages among the poor would have been a bad thing? But unfortunately, sometimes carnal motives have spiritual facades. Helping the needy seems like such a noble idea, and yet that's not really what the lead critic had in mind. Again, John supplies a telling detail in the 12th chapter and 6th verse of his gospel. Writing of Judas, he said this, that the ointment ought to have been sold, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas loved money. And money was his master. And Jesus was right. You cannot serve both God and money. Judas couldn't and neither can we. He chose money, which means he didn't choose Jesus. Mary chose Jesus. And Jesus affirms that she did the right thing, saying to his disciples, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want you can do good for them but you'll not always have me. Now this is not, as some might interpret it, a statement from Jesus about the futility of all our efforts to end poverty. Jesus is speaking literally. He is days away from being killed. He's not going to be with the disciples much longer, at least not physically. So what he's saying is, I'm leaving soon, and the opportunity any of you will have to do good to me is fleeting. And so the message seems plain. Do what good you can for me while you can. In fact, that is how Jesus credits Mary. In verse 8, she has done what she could. Friend, can that same statement be made of you? That with what you have, you have done what you could. He'll not ask or expect you to do what you couldn't. Only what you can. And God is pleased when we do what we can for him. But sometimes, don't you think, overly concerned with what we can't do. And sometimes we get fixated on what others are doing. And yet I think God would have us focus on what he has uniquely qualified and equipped each of us to do for him. For we will, as the scripture teaches, be accountable to God for what we've done with what we have been given. 
And so Jesus commends Mary for doing her part. She has fulfilled her role. It will not be hers to watch and pray in the garden. It will not be hers to carry his cross to Golgotha, to take his body down or to place it in a tomb. She's the one who has the anointing oil. And she's the one who treasures Jesus above worldly wealth. And it is hers to take what she has and in love generously apply it to Jesus. Have you given much thought to the occasions you have in this life to generously apply what you have to others and to God? And have you considered also that your opportunities to do these things that will last are diminishing with every minute that passes? Mary did what she could. What about you, friend? Will you today do what you can for Jesus? In closing, let me flesh this out just a little. Maybe give you some ideas about how to do what you can. How to apply yourself to Jesus. If you have not yet yielded your life to him, then that's the first step. That is the priority. Make him your savior. Experience his forgiveness for your sins. Inherit the gift of eternal life. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you should very specifically be able to answer this question. How am I serving him? If you can't answer that, then spend some time in prayer and, and seek the Lord. It's inconceivable that any Christian for a long period of time would not be serving the Lord who came to teach us to do exactly that, who said of himself that he came to serve. And, of course, we remember the whole foot washing thing. And he says to his disciples, you do what you've seen me do, and that is to serve. If the current COVID environment does not afford the type of service to Jesus that you are used to or gifted in, and here's another question for you to ask, how can I serve and honor Jesus in a pandemic? It was a great theologian, Jimmy Dean, who said, I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust my sails. And when we were all hunkered down, waiting this virus to pass, treating it like a summer thunderstorm, it made sense that we didn't think so much about service. But this isn't a squall, is it, my friends? This is a season. And surely there is God-honoring work that can be done. What adjustments can you make to your expectations and even your skill set that will position you to serve Jesus now? Now and when this is all behind us. Fourthly, are you a member of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church? And if you aren't, what's holding you back? The church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is here to do the work of Christ, the work of God. Join a church. Assess what it is you have to offer. Put your giftedness to use. By the way, if you are a Christian... The scripture teaches that every believer has at least one spiritual gift. So, so please don't say that you have nothing to offer. That's not scriptural at all. The Bible teaches that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Many have more. And that is to be used for the edifying and for the building up of the church. So yes, you absolutely can and should be plugged in to a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing 
church. Now, I could go on and on here, but I think you get the point. I really just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to understand that nothing is ever wasted on Jesus. I want to encourage you to do what you can for the one who did all he could for you. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy your sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.